Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ. An exciting lesson here for you. The final in our series from our 2005 Vacation Bible School. Greg Gwynn, a gospel preacher from Columbia, Tennessee, presented these lessons to us in our adult class. This final one, a very interesting one. If you've listened to the other lessons, you know they're all entitled, We Believe, and we've learned that we can believe in God, and that God created the world, and that the Bible is God's Word, and Jesus arose from the grave. This one is entitled, We Believe. But if we didn't believe, what a provocative title. This lesson is going to show what situation we would be in and what questions we would have to answer if we decided we didn't believe in God and the Bible. Open your Bibles and follow along with us as we learn where we would be if we didn't believe. We started out, but I was going to try to put you in the Perry Mason role. How Perry Mason searched for evidence and was a master at presenting the evidence in such a way to prove his case. And, and Perry Mason was always successful at that, and we hope that we can always be successful in presenting the evidence that proves the case concerning God, Jesus Christ, His Son, and the Bible is His inspired Word. As Christians, we understand that we have a responsibility in that regard. In fact, one of the verses that we've referenced each night is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that tells us to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're to be ready to make a defense. And as we've said, that's really what that's saying. Not just to answer, but actually make a defense and explain why you believe what you believe. As Christians, we accept that responsibility. And we frequently, in fact, engage in studies like the kind that we've had this week in which we think about the evidence, we organize those thoughts in our mind, to not only fortify our own faith, but so we can teach to other people. We, we accept that duty. We feel that we have a responsibility to be able to explain. And, 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 and we will even, we'll even go to some effort to try to persuade others to believe what we believe. We accept the responsibility. We really think that the evidence is compelling. Concerning God, we talked about the existence of God this week. We talked about the creation of the universe and God's mighty hand as was demonstrated in that creative work. We talked about the Bible, its literal inspiration, the amazing Bible and all that's in it, coming word for word from, the, uh, from God and to, to, to mankind. Last night we talked about Jesus as the resurrected Savior. We think that evidence is really convincing. And I, I, I believe that if an honest person will investigate those things, they will come to the conclusion that these things are real. Now, we, we understand, of course, that there are some difficult questions to answer. Uh, we're not saying that all of such things uh, have a very simple or easy answer. And we're not even saying that skeptics can't ask some questions that pose some difficulties that we have to work through. And, and very often we do that. There, there have been many attacks against Christianity through the centuries, and it continues to this day. There are people who don't believe and who work very hard to try to disprove the basic fundamentals of our faith. And so, we understand that we have to work hard in answering some of those questions. And, and we're going to continue to do that. We accept that duty. But tonight, we want to turn the tables, if you will. While all week we have been talking about what we believe and why, tonight we want to change gears and we want to throw it back on the unbeliever. We want to put the the onus of responsibility on those who don't accept the things that we've been talking about this week. 
if you don't believe the Bible, then I think that you have some difficult questions to answer. If you don't believe the Bible, you've got some explaining to do. And tonight we want to talk about that. We want to, we want to show some of the areas that I think the unbeliever would have a great difficulty in answering. If I didn't believe the Bible, I don't know how I would answer. And so, uh, as Edwin said, the theme of our lesson tonight is, I believe, we've been talking about that all week, I believe the Bible, but if I didn't believe it and what it teaches, there would be some questions I'd just have a hard time answering. And, that, and that's how we're going to go with our lesson tonight. We appreciate your presence very much. Glad you've come to be a part of this and hope that our studies this week have been an encouragement to us all, really, concerning the things that we hold most dear. I appreciate the elders for inviting me to participate in this Vacation Bible School this week. I'm glad that I could be a part of it, and uh, hope that we have done some good to the glory of God, and that's our main ambition. But I, I do want to express my appreciation uh, to the elders and to you all for allowing me to be a part of this this week. Let's talk about this. I believe the Bible... But if I didn't, how would I answer some things? Now, the, the first couple of points that we want to make probably, in all honesty, wouldn't convince an unbeliever, but they're interesting things to think about. For instance, if I didn't believe the Bible, I would be curious as to how this book has survived for so long. The other night when we were talking about the Bible, we said that it's really an ancient book. And I'm not talking about the particular copy that you're holding in your hand. Some of you have some pretty ancient-looking Bibles, I know, probably well-worn from use. But I'm talking about the Bible itself. It's an ancient book. Uh, there are parts of the Bible that were written about 3,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago. The very most recent writings of the Bible now are nearly 2,000 years old. So when you pick up your Bible to read it, you are reading an ancient document. Now, over all those years, a lot of books have come and gone. A lot of books. I don't suppose you could number the books that have come and gone in the intervening years since the Bible was written. It would be in the millions, millions upon millions of books have been written in that interval. And you know what? Most of those books have gone by the way. Most of those books are lost to mankind. They're not around anymore. You know, sometimes we talk about a book being out of print. Well, most of the books that have been written in the last 2,000 years, not only out of print, but they're long gone from existence. You couldn't find a copy if you wanted to. And those books fell by the way out of simple neglect and indifference. People just didn't care, and those books just went by the way. But the Bible has survived but the Bible has survived when there were even concerted efforts to destroy it. Throughout the centuries, there have been men who made it their goal and their objective to completely rid the world of all Bibles. For instance, the Roman Emperor Diocletian in 303 AD mandated that all Bibles should be seized and destroyed. Now, he was a powerful man, and he had the potential to carry through what he was intended to do, but he was not successful. Even a mighty emperor like Diocletian, when he wanted to destroy all the Bibles that existed, of course, there weren't near as many Bibles then as there are now, but his effort was to rid the world of the He could not succeed. Now, how is it that while most other books have just disappeared, how and why is it that the Bible has survived even when there were some powerful men who were determined to destroy it? Now, that's an interesting question. How did it survive? Now, again, I'm not saying that necessarily proves anything, 
But if I didn't believe the Bible was special, if I didn't believe the Bible was from God, I'd be curious as to why this book in particular has survived when others haven't. You see what I'm saying? Now, in addition to that question, I would ask the question as to why the Bible continues to be so very popular. Again, this doesn't necessarily prove anything as far as the Bible being from God, but if I was an unbeliever, if I didn't believe the Bible, I'd wonder how is it that this book continually, year by year, uh, remains so popular. You know, the Bible has been translated into over 1,700 different languages annually. It's on every bestseller list. It's known worldwide. Quotes and references to biblical subjects have been included in all of the world's greatest art and literature. Why the popularity? Why is the message that's in this book so special to mankind? Why has it been perennially so popular? Now again, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that would convince an unbeliever, but at least it raises a question of curiosity. What was so special about its message? And was there some force protecting this book? Why has it survived and why does it remain so popular? If I didn't believe the Bible, I would be at a loss to explain its freedom from mistakes. Now, I probably have to explain to you what I mean right here. Um, for instance, the Bible is free from the superstitions uh, that existed, the prejudices that were common in the day in which it was written. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Moses. Moses. You know that Moses was reared as the son of Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt, right? And so Moses had the best education available in Egypt in his day. Wouldn't you guess that? I mean, the Bible doesn't give us the particulars of it, but if he's, the, if he's regarded to be, although he wasn't literally, if he's regarded to be the grandson of the king, You'd have to believe that he would receive training and education at the hand of the, the men who were considered to be the most intelligent and wisest men of Egypt. That being the case, when Moses went to science class, I'm, you know, I'm using that expression obviously accommodatively, but when he had the equivalent of what we would call science class, do you know what he would have been taught in science class? The Egyptians in that era believed that the world, the earth, hatched from a flying egg. And they believed that men sprang forth from white worms that crawled out of the Nile River. And so the earth, the planet earth, came from a flying egg, and men came from white worms crawling out of the Nile River. Now that sounds ridiculous to us, just absolutely, incredibly uninformed at the very least. But I tell you, that was the best thinking of the day, in the day that Moses was being trained and reared in Egypt. Now, what about Moses? Moses is the man who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes we call it the Pentateuch. But he especially wrote Genesis, the story of the beginning. When Moses wrote about how the world was created, when he talked about how everything was made, when he talked about the origin of man and woman, what did Moses write? Did he write about a flying egg that hatched into the planet Earth? Did he write about white worms coming out of the Nile River? No. Instead, he wrote a creation account that has stood the test of time and today stands as an absolutely workable and reasonable explanation of our beginnings. 
Moses didn't write about the, the superstitions and prejudices that he would have been trained in. He wasn't writing, what we're saying is, clearly he was not writing from his own personal training and experience. What he was writing was given from God. So, if I didn't believe the Bible, I'd be curious as to how a man like Moses could have written that creation account, knowing that in his own personal experience he would have been taught something else. It's amazing that the Bible is free of those superstitions and prejudices that we today now know just absolutely foolishness. That's not included in the Bible. I'll give you another example. Daniel, the man Daniel. Daniel was trained in Babylon and became a great statesman in the Babylonian Empire, although he had been taken there as a captive by the Babylonians when they conquered Jerusalem and Judah. Daniel was a man who was a great prophet and an interpreter of dreams, and his prophecies are incredible in their detailed accuracy. But here's what's interesting. Daniel, by virtue of his training in Babylon, he would have been trained by people who believed that you could predict the future by observing the flight of birds, and that you could make predictions about what was going to happen in the future by dissecting chickens and, and somehow discerning their entrails. That was what was common in Babylon when Daniel was being trained there. But none of that superstitious thought was carried over into the things that he wrote about. And so that's what I'm saying when I'm saying that if I didn't believe the Bible, I would be at a loss to explain. How did those things, how were they kept out? Why aren't they in there? Why aren't they in the Bible? If the Bible is just a book that men wrote. You, you follow my thinking on that? Furthermore, I'd be at a loss to explain how that the Bible is free from contradiction. The other night when we were talking about the proofs of Bible inspiration, we mentioned that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by about 40 different human penmen. And the, fa the, the amazing fact is that you could take all those men and their diverse backgrounds, and you could take their writings and put them together, a perfect unity, complete harmony, no contradiction. That's really an amazing thing. If you don't think that's an amazing thing, do your own test. On the way home from services tonight, ask those riding in your car. If, if husband and wife and a couple of kids or three are riding in the car, ask, what did we have for supper? My guess is you won't be able to agree about all the details of supper that happened an hour or two ago. Four or five of you won't be able to agree about what you had for supper. How could 40 men... Many of them who didn't know one another, didn't even live in the same time or place, didn't even speak the same languages. How could you put their writings together and result in a perfect, united harmony? No contradictions. That is an amazing thing. And, and if I didn't believe the Bible, I'd be at a loss to explain that. Back in 1874, a man, a man named John W. Haley wrote a book that's still a a, a valuable reference work in most uh, preachers' libraries called The Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. And in it, Haley documented hundreds of supposed contradictions in the Bible and showed that none of them are true contradictions, that there's a fair and reasonable explanation for all of them. The Bible is free from contradictions. If I didn't believe it, I'd be at a loss to explain how that could have happened. You see what I'm saying? So our purpose of our lesson, I sort of turn the table on the unbeliever. How do they, if you don't believe, okay, you don't believe. But explain to me how these things are true about the Bible. 
Furthermore, I think it's interesting to notice that the Bible is free from emotionalism. As you watch the TV news in the evening, or if you pick up your newspaper to read it, or if you listen to the radio, one of the things we know that happens is that when news reports are given, it's not just the news, but more and more we are exposed to the opinions uh, and even the political agenda of the people who are supposedly just reporting the news. And I, and I don't know about you, but I find that to be a particularly disgusting thing. When I want the facts about the news, I don't like the news commentators giving me their political opinion about what's going on. I think one of the great signs of Bible inspiration is that there's none of that. The Bible does not try to force your response, your emotion to what happens, the facts that are conveyed. Let me give you a couple examples. In Matthew chapter 2, we have the account of King Herod killing all the young children round about the city of Bethlehem. As, as he was trying to kill the newborn Jesus, he, was, he, he killed all of the young children round about. I mean, it was a massacre. Uh, a, a, a horrendous event of colossal proportion. And a, you just can't imagine how incredibly terrible that would have been. You know what the Bible does? It simply reports the facts. You form your own opinion as to what you think about those facts. Probably the ultimate example, of course, is the case of the crucifixion of Jesus. When we read in the later chapters of the Gospel accounts, uh, Jesus is crucified. The facts are given free of bias. You just read, determine, develop your own emotional response to whatever it is that you have read. I think the, the, the absence of an emotional appeal or an emotionalism in the writing you know, if, if men had written, for instance, about the crucifixion of Jesus, surely it would have, you would have had all kinds of derogatory adjectives directed toward the Jewish rulers and the Roman governor and the people who were responsible for killing him. But there's none of that in the Bible. Which I think, again, is amazing. Why, if it was written by men, specifically if it was written by men who were sympathetic to Jesus, how is it that they were able to keep that emotionalism out of their reporting? Well, we believe, of course, that the answer to that is because God was guiding them in the process of writing the Bible. But if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that God was behind the Bible, how do you explain it? So we're saying, we need an explanation for you. This is a question we're asking. How do you explain it? If you don't believe the Bible is from God, how do you explain such things as that? Also, we understand that the Bible has no cover-ups. More and more in the news we, we read about politicians. More and more it seems that different things come out about their personal and private lives and some of the horrible things that they do. Even here in recent weeks right in Tennessee there's been a number of stories about political corruption in, in state governmental officials. But politicians, of course, do their very best to cover those things up. In fact, that's a human characteristic. When we do bad things, we try to keep it private. When we do horrible things, we try to keep it a secret. Certainly, you don't go out and advertise it. You don't write it up. You don't talk about it. You try to keep it under wraps. That's normal, not just for politicians, but for all of us. If you were going to write a book, and you were going to try, by virtue of this book, to get people, to, get people motivated to do certain things, if you were going to write about certain characters that you wanted to hold up as heroes, you would more than likely cover up their misdeeds. That would be a human tendency, right? 
Don't tell the bad things about the people that you're trying to hold as example. Don't tell horrible things about people you want to be regarded as heroes. Okay, now, when you read the Bible, what about the Bible? That doesn't happen in the pages of the Bible, right? Take a great Old Testament hero, King David. A wonderful man, but he certainly had his horrible faults. Uh, probably the one that stands out most vividly in our minds is that terrible episode with Bathsheba, when not only did he commit adultery with a married woman, he had her husband murdered. David, though, is held up as a great example for us and a hero of our faith. But no attempt to cover up the failings of his humanity. In the New Testament, we've got the Apostle Peter, one of the men closest to Jesus and one of those most instrumental in spreading the, the, the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. And yet we see him in his weakest moments. If men were writing the Bible, my thinking is that they would have kept that out. Don't write about that. Cover it up. Because that's what men typically do. But in the Bible, there's no such cover-up attempted. And again, I have to tell you, to me, that's a sign that this book is not a book written just by men. This is a book from God. That's what I believe. If you don't believe that, though, you explain it to me. How do you explain it? I just don't think it's possible to explain it in a reasonable way. So, I believe the Bible, but if I didn't, how did it survive? How did it remain so popular? How does it stay, how did it stay free from various kinds of mistakes that we were just identifying. If I didn't believe the Bible, I would be impressed as archaeologists continue to make new discoveries. Time magazine said the Bible is often surprisingly accurate in historical particulars, more so than earlier generations of scholars ever suspected. U.S. News and World Report said a wave of archaeological discoveries is altering old ideas about the roots of Christianity and Judaism and affirming that the Bible is more historically accurate than many scholars thought. Now, here are these, these publications, obviously not noted as religiously based publications, but here are some people who are saying, you know, more and more we're finding out that the Bible is accurate. Archaeology is proving the accuracy of Bible accounts. Let me give you an example of one. We're going to talk about evidence from Jericho. Uh, Jericho has been, for a long time, a famous point of criticism for skeptics of the Bible. Skeptics of the Bible said that there was no fortified city at Jericho. Now, you remember, the Bible says that when Joshua and the children of Israel entered into the Promised Land, the first city they encountered was Jericho. It was a mighty fortified walled city. And God miraculously delivered that city into the hand of the Israelites the way they did it, not by conventional warfare. Instead, they marched around the walls of the city. And on the seventh day, as they marched around and sounded their trumpets, the walls of the city fell in miraculous fashion. The city was delivered. But you also remember there was something about don't take any spoil from the city. There was one man who did, and he paid the price later, but the rule for them... You know, usually when... when Armies conquered a city. The, the thing they did first was gather the spoil, take the valuables, take what's of value. But they were forbidden to do that in the case of the destruction of Jerusalem. Skeptics have said for a long time that that was not so, that it didn't happen. But back in 1990, in Biblical Archaeological Review, there was an article about new discoveries at the site of ancient Jericho. Um, 
the evidence, the new evidence that they have unearthed there said that there was a strongly fortified city at that site. It also indicated that the attack occurred just after the spring harvest because they found stores of food in place, left untouched and unbothered in the city. The inhabitants had to, had to flee, had no opportunity to flee, rather. The siege was short. We know the Bible says it was very short. You know, sometimes in ancient times when cities were besieged by opposing armies, the siege would go on for years. Here, only for a few days. The walls were leveled suddenly. The city was not plundered. The city was burned, and all of that matches just exactly with what the biblical account says about it. You know, skeptics had even said that the city was destroyed uh, before the Israelites ever arrived in the land of Canaan. But new evidence has indicated that the Bible account is exactly accurate. Now, that's just one example, but that's what we're saying when we say that archaeological findings have supported the truths that are taught in the Bible. How is it that a book written so long ago and, and written uh, to describe really the history of, of a specific group of people, how is it that that historical account has been proven again and again and again to be so accurate? And if it was just written by men, surely they'd miss it in some of, this, some of these historical particulars. How is it that it's so accurate? How do you explain that? If you don't believe it's from God, how do you explain it? Or, how do you explain the predictive prophecies that are contained in the Bible? We know that the Bible contains many prophecies about things that were going to happen in the future. And one of the positive proofs, and we talked about this some the other night when we were talking about the inspiration of Scripture. One of the positive proofs about the Bible is that the prophecies that it contains and that it shows that, that were fulfilled as amazingly in great detail as, as, as they were given and as they were fulfilled. L let me ask you a question. Now, just think about it this way. Would you be impressed tonight if I could, right now, tell you the two teams that are going to be in the World Series this fall? You know, I mean, here, here we are in June. The World Series will be played in October. But I'm going to make a prediction about the two teams that are going to be in the World Series. I'm going to pick the Yankees. Of course, you've you got to always count on the Yankees. Even if they start out bad, they're probably in strong. And because I'm a Braves fan, I'll pick the Braves. That probably won't happen. But let's, just say, let's just say, Yankees and Braves in the World Series in October. And then come around October, and I was right. Would you be impressed? I said, no. At best, it was a lucky guess. He just guessed. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, increase, the, I'm going to increase the predictive uh, power here. I'm going to say Yankees and Braves in the World Series. The Yankees will win because the Braves always collapse in the playoffs. I'm going to say the Yankees will win over the Braves four games to two. The Yankees will win the World Series four games to two. Would you be impressed that if it comes around October and that in fact happens? So I said, well, yeah. pretty lucky guess. Pretty lucky guess. Just a guess. Okay, let me do it again. Yankees and Braves in the World Series. Yankees will win four games to two. And I will give you tonight the exact score of every game. Now, if, if October rolls around and the first game is played, and I've accurately predicted the score, second, third, I get all the scores exactly right. Would you be impressed then? Come on now, you're going to have to be impressed here at some point, right? Now, that would be impressive, wouldn't it? If, if a person could do that. 
Well, I want to tell you, if you would be impressed with that, you ought to be incredibly impressed by the things that are contained in the Bible, because that doesn't even hold a candle to the kind of predictions that are made in the Bible, prophetic predictions that came true. A man named Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks, and in it he talked about the prophecies of the Bible. And he chose eight prophecies about Jesus. Now, the Old Testament contains more than 300 prophecies about Jesus, but Stoner picked just eight of them. And he picked, for instance, that he would be born at Bethlehem, be preceded by a messenger, he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed by a friend, be sold for 30 pieces of silver, the money would be thrown down in the temple and used to buy a potter's field, he would be, and he would be silent before his accusers and crucified with thieves. So Stoner picked those eight prophecies. Now remember, that's just, a, that's just a, a tiny bit of the real complete prophecies about Jesus. But he chose these prophecies. And then he tried to do a mathematical calculation about the probability that any single individual could have fulfilled those prophecies just by chance. Now, think about that for a minute. And you, and you begin to realize that just, just take the first one, for instance, born at Bethlehem. Well, over the course of history, the percentage of people who've been born in the tiny village of Bethlehem, incredibly small, right? So the odds that one man would be born in Bethlehem, among all men ever born, that, that a man would be born in Bethlehem, already the odds are incredibly small. And then he multiplied the additional probabilities, put it all together, and you know what he found out? He found out that, that the odds that a single individual could have fulfilled those eight prophecies just by chance, one in ten to the seventeenth power. Now, that's a number, obviously, so incredibly big that we can't even comprehend it. But he went on to give a way of sort of grasping how big a number that is. There's a picture of the state of Texas. We were talking to Stephen Tanner the other night about how Texans think everything's so incredibly big in Texas. They do, and Texas is big. In fact, Texas is so big, there's the state of Tennessee. And, that, and when, I, when I sketched those in there, those were to scale. I actually traced them off of a map. So, we think Tennessee is fairly large. If you were to drive all the way from the Tri-Cities to Memphis, you'd think Tennessee is pretty big. But Tennessee is nothing in comparison to the size of Texas. So, Texas is a huge state. Now, if you were to take 10 to the 17th power number of silver dollars, okay, silver dollars, and you've got 10 to the 17th power, that many of them, you could cover the whole state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. If you had that many silver dollars, it would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Now, the odds then that Stoner was dis discussing concerning the, the odds that one man could fulfill just eight of the prophecies about Jesus by mere chance or accident, take one silver dollar, mark it somehow, throw it into Texas, mix it all up with the others, blindfold a man, maybe at Amarillo or someplace, you know, and turn him loose and tell him you can walk as far as you want to walk, you can walk as long as you want to walk, he's blindfolded. But finally you've got to stop, stoop down, and pick up one dollar, one silver dollar. What are the odds that he would pick up that one marked coin? Well, the odds are 
1 in 10 to the 17th power. Right? The odds are impossible, right? For all practical purposes, absolutely impossible. Well, Stoner said that those are the odds that, that were achieved when Jesus fulfilled just those eight prophecies that were made about him. Remember, there were more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were made about Jesus. And the fact that he fulfilled them all in incredible, exact detail is truly an amazing thing. Now, again, the question. I believe the Bible. Things like that make me believe the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, how do you explain that? I mean, we're, we need an answer. If you don't believe the Bible, you should feel some responsibility, some obligation to explain why you don't believe the Bible. Uh, as I was saying earlier, we accept our responsibility to try and prove what we believe. But if you're going to be intellectually honest and you, and you discount the Bible and the claims of the Bible and the things that we've been studying this week, then you're duty-bound, really, to give your answer. How do you explain these things? Furthermore, if I didn't believe the Bible, I would certainly wonder why people died to get the message to me. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Let's say that there's somebody that you know over in Memphis. And they write out a message addressed to you. And they give it into the hands of a courier. And they tell this courier, this is vital information, very important. It by all means must reach Franklin, Tennessee. Don't let anything keep you from getting this to Franklin, Tennessee. And so the courier starts out from Memphis and he meets with all kinds of hardships. He's waylaid by bandits. He's beaten. He's mugged. He's robbed. He, he just, I mean, it's incredible the hardships that he faces coming from Memphis to here. He gets to Franklin. He comes to you with this letter in his hand and in his dying breath, he lays it into your hand and he falls over dead on the floor. And you, you, you're made to understand about all the hardships and all the difficulties that, that he experienced in getting this letter to you. And so you now have this letter in your hand. This man has died getting this message to you. And you have it in your hand. What are you going to do with it? You just say, well, put it over there with the, you know, put it over there with the unopened mail. I'll get around to it in a day. You're going to ignore that message? You're going to say, let's just put it over there with the junk mail. I've got a pile of junk mail that's come in the mail this week and I haven't opened it all yet. I put it, I'll read it later. You're going to do that? There's no way, right? If, 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 I don't know what's in this message, but if it was important enough that a man died in order to get it to me, I certainly am going to investigate what it teaches, what it says. Well, that's what we're saying about the Bible. Very literally, when you pick up your Bible to read it, you are doing exactly what we just described. But not just one man, hosts of people have died through the centuries to preserve this message and get it in your hand. When you open your Bible to read it, you are reading a letter that people died to deliver to you. Now, if I didn't believe the Bible, I would be wondering, what's so special about this book? And why was it so that people were determined to get it to me? So determined that they were willing to die for it. Now, I hope that you'll agree that the problems of unbelief are pretty staggering. Think about it, because an unbeliever would be duty-bound to try and explain 
these things, its survival, its popularity, its freedom from mistakes, and the, the accuracy of archaeological findings, the predictive prophecy of defense, and why people were willing to die to get the message to us, I, I, just, I just can't understand how people would answer those challenges. But, my guess is, that for the vast majority of us here tonight, you would say with me, I do believe. I do believe. I don't have to answer those questions we were asking tonight, because I do believe. I've accepted the evidence, and I really believe. But the follow-up question to that, and one that we really haven't been stressing enough, probably, in our lessons this week, we've been racing through some of the material that we wanted to present, and really haven't had the time to really deal with the logical response to the truths that are contained in the Word of God. If I do believe, then what should I do about that? Well, let's go to the Bible itself. If you believe it, let's see what the Bible says that faithful men did. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we have the story of faithful men who lived through the ages. And, it, and their stories are told there in some detail, and it's rather interesting to look at them. For instance, in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now, in all of these, I want to emphasize to you that faith is under discussion. But I want you to notice what faithful men did. And in every instance, we're going to find something like this. We're going to find a verb that describes some actions that were taken. They had faith, and they acted upon that, that faith. They had faith, and they did something. In this case, you remember one of the very early Bible stories about Cain and Abel. And Abel was a man of faith. And so his faith prompted him to do something. He offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. In verse 7, we read about the famous man Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. We talk about Noah and his ark. And, and I, uh, one of the things that's unfortunate about that story is that sometimes we ascribe that to the little children's classes, and the, and the children learn about Noah. But I'll tell you, Noah is a tremendous study for us who are adults. Noah stands as an amazing example of faith in action. Notice it says that he prepared an ark. By faith, he prepared an ark. That was no mean task. That was an amazing assignment that God gave to Noah. You know, that ark that Noah built was just of immense proportions. If you go back into Genesis 6 and you read about the instructions God gave concerning the construction of the ark, the physical dimensions of it were enormous. An interesting fact is that it has been within the last 100 years until men ever attempted to build a vessel larger than Noah's Ark. Now, today there are some big ocean, the super tankers and so forth that go across the oceans are now somewhat bigger than Noah's Ark. But it's been within the last century since men even ever tried to make something as big or bigger than Noah's Ark. But consider the fact that Noah was assigned that job. He wasn't, he wasn't in possession of power tools, hydraulic lifts, cranes. He didn't have any of that. He was given this job to do with what surely amounted to the crudest of hand tools. He had this awesome responsibility. And so, don't take it too lightly when you read that expression, he prepared an ark. That was an enormous job. Why did he do it? What motivated him to take that action? Well, notice, it was, it was by faith. Faith led him to action. He prepared an ark. 
Then in verses 8 and 17, we read about the hero Abraham, the patriarch, great patriarch of the Old Testament. And it says, by faith Abraham, when he was called out, uh, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeying. And then verse 17 says, by faith when he was tried, he offered up Isaac. So two episodes are discussed in the life of Abraham. One of those was when he was called from his home and told to go to He didn't know where he was going. He was just told to go. And what did he do? Well, he obeyed. But again, I'm emphasizing it was by faith. By faith he obeyed. By faith he acted. Faith led to action. He left his home to go to a place that God was showing him. He didn't know where it was. didn't have any idea what it would be like. But he went in faith. And furthermore, in an incredible test of his faith, Remember, he had one only son in his old age, Isaac, by his wife Sarah. And he was told to offer up Isaac. And he did. But we remember, of course, the Bible story tells us that he was stopped at the last minute from actually killing his son in sacrifice. But he was willing to do that. And that's the kind of faith that he had. Faith led to action. He was motivated to act. And then finally, we can talk about Moses. We mentioned Moses already in our, our lesson tonight about how he was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the grandson, for, for all intents considered to be the grandson of the king of Egypt. What did Moses do? Well, it says, again, emphasizing it was by faith. By faith, Moses, when he had come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. In every one of those instances, and it's kind of interesting, you might do that sometime in your Bible if you haven't already in Hebrews 11. Just go down through there. And it's a, it's a chapter about faith, right? But notice the verbs of action. In every instance where those heroes are held up as examples of faith, their actions are described. And that's what faith does. Faith motivates to action. And so, if as you study the evidence concerning God... His creation, the inspired Word of God, Jesus as the resurrected Son of God, the things that we've studied in our lessons this week. If as you study those things, you say, you know, I do believe. Then your necessary response to that is that you also must obey. In fact, logic demands it. If these things are true, then the only reasonable thing to do is to obey. Faith must produce obedience. It always has in the people that please God, and it must do so in our case too, if we would please Him. We always recite the simple gospel plan of salvation. Hear the truth, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. So based on hearing, believing, repentance, confession, and baptism, one can be saved from sin. Those are the things that God expects us to do. And if you believe, that's what you should do. Uh, If you are a Christian already, but you've not continued in faithfulness, that doesn't make sense. That's not reasonable. If God is true, if the Bible conveys His will to us, then you must be faithful to Him as a Christian. And if you've not been, you need to repent and come back to Him. That's that's where this leads. It's not just an academic study about a book. Rather, it's, it's a study that must lead to a personal response of faith. We encourage you to do that. Appreciate your good attention to all the things that we've talked about this week and appreciate very much again the invitation to participate with you in the Vacation Bible School. Boy, there'd be a lot of questions to answer if we didn't believe in God and in the Bible. 
Remember the great point that Brother Glenn made. We as Christians are willing to stand up and answer the questions the skeptics raise against us. If you're going to decide not to believe in God and the Bible, are you willing to answer the questions that the Bible raises for you? I certainly hope you'll consider that, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. If you have any questions about the Bible, about God, about how to serve Him or understand His Word, or maybe you have some questions about the Franklin Church of Christ, in any case, please give us a call at 615-794-2359 or contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. If somebody gave you this lesson, let me invite you to come to that website anyway. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. You can download the other lessons in this series or numerous other lessons that we've had presented at the Franklin Church of Christ. We have them there for you in audio format and outline format, and you're allowed to download as many as you would like and use them in whatever way you believe will further God's cause in this world. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him, but more importantly, may you richly bless God.